We're now going to spend some time studying the scriptures together. This is a central part of what we do every week. We study the Bible because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, as we said before, this uh, is a special focus on the resurrection. And so we've been finishing up the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're ending that next week, uh, well, ending chapter 15 next week, and then we got a couple of uh, sermons from chapter 16, and we've been in the resurrection already just because of where we are studying 1 Corinthians, um, but now, because of Easter, we want to look at one of the specific resurrection appearances of Jesus from the Gospels in Luke chapter 24. We're calling the sermon this week, Surprised by Faith, Surprised by Faith. I want to make the connection for you that we're often surprised by Jesus in the same way the first followers are. We can often think that the first followers had it all figured out. They knew what it was like to follow Jesus. They had all the answers. They saw Jesus face to face. They had everything figured out. But they were often confused, bewildered, surprised, astonished, just like you and me. I want to share a little bit of an analogy from my own spiritual journey. Uh, When I was an older teenager going into my senior year in high school, I can remember being surprised by the faith of other people that I looked up to. Uh, I had this worldview as a teenager that spirituality, being serious about following Jesus, was really something for older people. And that young people, you might go to church, you might express faith in Jesus at some superficial level, but you didn't actually love him, follow him, and obey him. That was my messed up worldview at the time. I thought, yeah, I like Jesus, he's a nice guy, and, and maybe when I'm really old, I'll start obeying him. I'll, I'll get real involved in the church. I'll read my Bible. I'll, I'll do what Jesus says. I was thinking, you know, that's, that's like really for older people, like really old, like maybe 30 years old, right? <laughs> so that was my plan uh, as going into my senior year in high school. But, but then I was surprised by some youth leaders, some role models, some guys that were a little bit older than me that were in college, and they actually took their faith really seriously. Um, they, they seemed young and cool and like they had fun and they enjoyed life and I wanted to be like them and yet they obeyed Jesus. They loved Jesus. They were passionate to follow him and try to live according to his word. That, that surprised me. That, that kind of shook up my worldview. I'd had a, a different view of Christianity and these guys were challenging my view. Well, we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 24 that similarly kind of shakes up our worldview. The first followers of Jesus thought they knew who he was, and then the crucifixion, the death of Jesus kind of messed everything up, and they had, to, they had to reshuffle the deck. They had to rethink who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. So let's look at Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs. We'll be on page 885. Page 885. It's Luke chapter 24, surprised by faith. Starting in verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So this is just kind of a a pit stop uh, outer suburb of the capital city, Jerusalem, in Israel. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So this is right after the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there 
in these days? And he said to them, what things? This is dramatic irony. Jesus actually knows what happened, okay? (laughs) They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. These guys are bewildered, they're astonished, they're in shock, they're kind of talking about it, they're trying to make sense of how their faith has taken this kind of wrong turn in their mind, that the guy they they had hoped previously was going to be the leader is now dead. He's been killed. And they don't even realize they're actually talking to the living Jesus in this very moment. I'm going to pray that Jesus, who is alive, who is risen from the dead, would would join us, that his spirit would be here with us and help us to hear from his word, that he'd teach us. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would be here with us, that you would teach us by your spirit who you are, that you would give us supernatural sight to see you. God, we need you. We need your spirit. We pray that you would shape us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the first followers of Jesus were surprised by their faith. We're often surprised by faith as well. And so I want to invite you into this journey, whether you've been walking with Jesus for many years or whether you're still kind of skeptical about who Jesus is and what he promises, I want to invite you to be surprised as he reveals himself. He's going he's gonna to change the ideas, the preconceived notions that we already have. He's going to shake things up a little bit. As we move through the story, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that the early followers and we are going to often be surprised by sadness. Surprised by sadness. The second thing we'll see is that we're often surprised by the Bible. Surprised by the Bible. We're going to see Jesus do a Bible study with these guys. Surprised by the Bible. And then finally, they and we can be surprised by the very closeness of Jesus. Surprised by the closeness of Jesus. He's, he's walking and talking with them and they don't even realize it's him. And often in our own lives, Jesus can be right there with us and we don't even see him. We don't even recognize his closeness or his presence. So first of all, they and we can be surprised by sadness. We see this in the first section. We've already read some of these verses Part of what I like about the book of Luke and the way that it's written is it's very journalistic, it's very historical. Um, All four Gospels have kind of a different focus, right? Uh, Matthew focuses more on uh, Old Testament fulfillments. Uh, The book of Mark is very action-oriented. It's the quickest, the shortest Gospel, and it talks the most about quick, immediate action and power. And so then it has a different perspective than Matthew. And then along comes Luke, and Luke is very detailed. He says he's giving an orderly account. It's a very long gospel. He gives a lot of the details. He, he acts and functions like a journalist. It's the most like a documentary. The gospel of John is big vision. It has the most big, beautiful, abstract ideas, and then it brings it down really close to show how Jesus became the word in the flesh and was there close with us. So they all have kind of different perspectives. They all testify to the same Jesus. They're telling us the same true story about Jesus, but doing it from a different angle. Luke is beautiful in the way he picks apart these little details. And one detail that we might miss if we were trying to make a really impressive religious document is we miss the sadness of the first followers. And Luke picks it out and he's like, man, they're, they're sad. 
These guys are brokenhearted. They're, they're confused, just like sometimes we're sad. Faith doesn't always go the way that we thought it would. Look in verse 17. After he asked them what's going on, they stood still looking sad. They stood still looking sad. That word could be translated as depressed or gloomy. They're just sad. Part of the reality of them following Jesus leads them to sadness. We sometimes have this alternative message that's preached in some churches today. Sometimes it's called a health and wealth gospel. The idea is if you give enough money or have enough faith, you'll never be sad again. Everything will be rosy. The New Testament paints a different picture, that actually to follow Jesus often entails great sadness. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so Jesus promises us a future where he will wipe away every tear, where the sadness will be taken away, but we often walk through great sadness. We often are living in the midst of great sadness. They stood still looking sad. And then it says in verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love, I love the irony here, right? We're in on the story. We know it's actually Jesus. He doesn't know it's Jesus. Jesus knows better than anybody else what has happened during these days. Jesus experienced it firsthand. But he asks them, no, tell me about it. Tell me about it. He said, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him crucified him. This is a really sad word. Crucifixion was an incredibly painful, torturous death. The Roman Empire, like all great empires, they were experts in domination, in power, in torture, and in death. They had really perfected how to kill people and make an example of them in front of others. And crucifixion was the way they did that. Before anyone was hung on a cross, they'd be whipped and beaten and mocked. The story is that Jesus was whipped, and in this world, they would have a whip that wasn't just leather straps, you know, that would hurt you or tear your flesh, but it was leather straps that had little bits of iron, a glass, metal, bone, little bits of sharp things that would be whipped across the flesh and tear into the skin, tearing deep into the muscles, even puncturing down to the bone often. So his flesh had just been torn to shreds. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was stripped in front of others. That was just the beginning of the crucifixion. And then he had to carry his cross. We're told in the story he couldn't carry it all the way. Someone had to help him because he'd been beaten up. He was so close to death already. He's nailed to the cross. And the way that crucifixion would work is people would generally die from asphyxiation, Right? They would just stop breathing because every breath they took, they had to push up. They had a nail through their feet. They're pushing up to take a breath, and then they're slumping back down again. They push up again to take a breath, and then they slump back down. And often people just couldn't go on anymore, and they would die, not getting enough oxygen into their lungs. Every breath was painful. The entire ordeal was horrific. It was sad. This is the definition of sadness, and Jesus knew it better than anyone. So they're telling in the story, our, our rulers, our chief priests delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21 says, but we 
had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Jesus had told his followers repeatedly, on the third day I'll rise again. But you know what? They didn't hear it. They didn't understand it because it just doesn't make sense. People don't rise from the dead. And so that part never stuck with them. And so it's another little bit of irony. They're like, yeah, and it's, it's the third day. And to go, go on to say, some people discovered his tomb was empty. We don't know what's going on. None of this makes any sense to us. I want to fixate a little bit, though, on verse 21. It says, we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they hoped he was the Christ. He was the anointed one. Uh, Christ is Greek for anointed one, chosen one. Messiah is Hebrew. Both of these terms just mean the chosen leader, right? Term could be used in the Old Testament for any chosen leader, but there was this great chosen one that all the prophecies looked forward to, an ultimate chosen one. And they had hoped that he was the one, that he was going to go in and, and vanquish their enemies and push out all the enemies of God, push out Rome, take over. Their, their political party was going to win, and it was going to be happily ever after, and everything was going to be great, but he's dead. I said, we had hoped. Um, the Greek grammarians tell me this is the imperfect tense. This was like a, a past ongoing action. So they were hoping in the past, but they're not hoping anymore. This is an ongoing past hope, but no longer a present hope. Daryl Bach, one of the great commentaries or great commentators on Luke, says this, For them, Jesus' death had spelled a seeming end to that hope. So we've got verse 17. They looked sad. They stood still, kind of shell-shocked. We've got the declaration of crucifixion. Our leaders crucified him. Most horrible, sad death someone could die. And then verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but they're not really hoping anymore. Christianity is one of the few religions that actually engages head-on the sadness of this world in two ways. Number one, it's actually the entry point into faith starting with the true, honest sadness of just how broken we are, just how broken the world is. We got to start there before we can see the salvation that God offers. And then in an ongoing way, Christianity is a religion that says, yeah, we're not, we're not all the way there yet. We haven't made it to heaven yet. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, but we're still engaged in a, in a life of sadness and difficulty. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. I know in my own experience, I, I avoided sadness as much as I could as a child. Um, I had somewhat of a sad childhood, and so I think I kind of ran the other direction. I never wanted to watch sad movies, uh, never wanted to read sad books. I can remember being assigned certain more sad, depressing novels in school, and I would just be like, forget that. I just wouldn't even finish it. Um, I would run from these things. As I've gotten older and as I've gotten more mature in my faith, I think, there's a hope I now have in the resurrection that enables me to more honestly engage the sadness of the world that we live in. Because if the sadness is all there is, you're going to be tempted really hard to just run the other way. But when you know that there's a hope beyond the sadness, it frees you up to be honest about it. I think we can thank artists for helping us admit the sadness. Um, I've had artistic friends in my life. Chris Webster, our resident artist here at the church, he just released a new song that's a song of lament and confession that we often sing at the church. I encourage you to go look that up on the interwebs. Uh, it's lift us up for we are heavy laden. When we first started the church, Chris and I were working together uh, as a couple of the first staff members uh, when we first started this church 15 years ago. And we were talking about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to have a celebratory church and we wanted to have a cheerful church and a fun church. And we're like, but we want to 
avoid the extreme that some churches fall into where they never talk about anything sad. There's never contemplation. There's never sad. It's just all happy all the time. And you're like, that's, just, that's too far, right? And so we begin to introduce things like confession of sin and assurance of God's grace and just introducing some lament songs and some confession songs. We said, you know what? That's, that's a fuller picture of the Christian life. We have hope. We have much to be joyful about, much to celebrate. But it's also important for us to stop and admit the sadness, to be real about that. And we see this in these first followers. They are sad, and it's really a doorway into the Christian faith for them. My son is also an artist, actually mentored by Chris, and um, <laughs> we joke, he's also good at sadness. They're just artists. It's your gift, right, to be sad for us, um, to help us to see how sad the, the world really is. My son wrote a song last Easter trying to see the empty tomb through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, who didn't know what was going on. She first was like, someone's stolen the body. What's going on? And he wrote this song called Looking for Jesus, where she's just crying. She's sobbing, just like we see in the pictures. And he, he captures well that moment of, I don't know what I believe anymore. The first followers of Jesus went through that kind of skepticism. They went through that kind of complete disorientation and loss of faith before it was rebuilt again. And I want to encourage you that that's an important part of knowing Jesus is admitting just how bad things really are. We've got to be real about the sadness before we can move on. In the song, Looking for Jesus, he really words it as if it's a deconstruction on Mary Magdalene's part. We know the rest of the story that she came to see the resurrected Christ, but here she says, what am I doing? Who am I crying for? Am I silly for missing someone I don't believe in anymore? What am I doing kneeling down on the floor? I'm looking for Jesus where I found him before. I want to encourage you to embrace the actual sadness of your life and my life in this world as a doorway into knowing Jesus. Being real about how bad things really are helps us to find the hope that we can only find in Jesus. So here are two Christian words for this. This is how we apply this. This is how we do sadness as Christians, okay? We have two very important theological words. It's lament and confession. Lament and confession. Two things that Christians are commanded to practice. We're commanded to lament. We're commanded to confess. Lament is more of the external, the sadness out there. We live in a world of tornadoes, right? Salado was halfway wiped out last week. We live in a world of disease and death and divorce and brokenness. We need to lament the sadness. The Psalms are full of examples of this. Oh, Lord, how long? How long, oh, Lord, before you come back and you save us, before you wipe away all our tears? That is what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to lament, honestly, the sadness out there. But before you can really even get to that level of honest lament in the ongoing Christian life of faith, you've got to enter the doorway of sadness, and we call this confession. Confess in Greek means to just say the same thing as to confess, 1 John 1, is to be honest that there's a sadness in my heart and in your heart. The problem with the world is not just out there. The problem with the world is also in here. It's in me. It's in you. We've not done what God has told us to do. We've not loved our neighbors the way he's commanded us to love our neighbors. We've not stood for justice and stood for kindness and made the right decisions, but we've run from him. We've drifted from him. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, but God has laid on him, on Jesus, 
the sins of us all. So 1 John 1 says you, you got two options with internal sadness, two options with what the Bible calls sin. You can either confess it and throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus or another good option, lie about it. I don't recommend the second option. That's what a lot of us do. We lie about it by saying, I don't even believe this category of sin. You're crazy. Sin doesn't exist. I just got to be true to myself. That's one way of lying about sin. More popular in our circles is to lie about sin by pretending we've overcome it. By saying, I'm better. Do you see that person over there? I'm way better than them. I'm a good person. I give to the church. I serve in the nursery. All good things. Please do that. But that can't save you. It's not enough to overcome your sin. And it can end up being a way that we lie about our sin. So we've got to confess it, be real. Lord, I'm sad not just about what's out there and people that have hurt me. I'm sad about myself. I've hurt you, God. I've committed cosmic treason. And I need Jesus to take my sins upon himself on the cross. I need the resurrection life of Jesus to set me free from my own sin and sadness and death. People of faith lament external sadness. People of faith confess our own internal sadness. And we find peace in Jesus. The second point is that they're surprised by the Bible. They're surprised by the Bible. I want to jump ahead to verse 24. The story is continuing. Um, they say some people discover the empty tomb. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's happening. Of course, I, I said earlier, they can't make sense of an empty tomb. They didn't really think he was going to rise from the dead. And so Jesus says in verse 24, some of those, or they say in verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they're like, we, we kind of wanted to hope, right? Empty tomb, didn't make sense. We went and looked, but we didn't see him. So we don't know what's going on. Verse 25, Jesus is beginning his Bible study with very important words here, okay? Um, and we might want to just start practicing this at the Bible studies we host at Grace Bible Church, starting off every Bible study with these words. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's probably a good kind of honest, humble way to start our Bible study. We are foolish ones and we are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, now let's start studying what the prophets say. He says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And now he gets specific. What have the prophets spoken? Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? He said, that was there. It was in the book. Didn't you read the book? Have you, not, have you not looked at what the prophets have said? The chosen one wasn't just going to be all rainbows and lollipops. He was going to have to suffer. There was no glory without the suffering. So that's a part of the story. It's in there. Have you not read it? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There are things about Jesus in all the scriptures. Here, he's talking about the Old Testament. We talk now about the scriptures, the Bible, as the whole thing, Old and New Testament, the apostles' writings now, but these apostles didn't have faith yet, and they weren't writing the New Testament yet, and so they're just looking at the Old Testament. Jesus is teaching the Old Testament and saying it's all about him. Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. If you don't see Jesus as the solution to every puzzle that the Old Testament uh, asks, if you don't see Jesus as the solution to every problem that the Old Testament brings up, then you're missing the point of the Old Testament. I'll read it again. Beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. All the prophets, it's kind of a catch-all for everything else written, both what we consider prophecies and writings. He interpreted them in all the scriptures, all the writings, the things concerning himself. 
There are things in all the writings about Jesus. He's the point. And so we need to think, how can we also be surprised by the Bible? Because most of us are not going to get to get this Bible study direct from Jesus, right? We often think, if I, was just, if I was just right there, if I saw Jesus face to face, then I would, I'd be totally on it. Now, they're seeing Jesus face to face and they're still not recognizing him. You realize that, right? And what I love, later on he reveals himself, what I love here is I, I heard another preacher say this, Jesus could have just like taken off his hood and been like, boo, it's me, right? But instead, he teaches them the Bible. How does Jesus show himself to these disciples? He teaches them the Bible. So we study the Bible every week because we believe this. We believe this is true, that it's speaking to us with his authority, with his relevance, and that we'll, we'll see him as we study his words. Well, he's surprising them. And I think as we're surprised by the Bible as well, we're going to grow in our own faith. And I think, again, just to kind of boil this down to two words, two ways we can do being surprised by the Bible, I would say ask and read. Ask and read. Ask, I mean, ask your honest questions. Don't just stuff them. Don't just ignore them. Jesus is big enough to handle your questions. What happens if you don't ask your questions? Well, you're kind of either pretending you don't care, and it's going to pop up later and cause you serious problems, or you're saying, this is a good excuse for me to not believe in Jesus. That's what a lot of people do. My professor told me that the Bible was not reliable, so all right, bingo, get out of jail, free card, I don't have to believe the Bible, and you're done. Please don't be that lazy. Please ask your questions. Please challenge the things that these skeptics say. The Bible can stand up to our questions. A couple of evidences that I'll just throw out. I grabbed a picture of ancient manuscripts here. We've got um, some pictures, and we've just found tons and tons of ancient manuscripts of our Greek documents as well as our ancient Hebrew documents. The Bible has more ancient, better, more reliable, more agreeing documents than any other religion, any other history, any other philosophy that exists. And this is not just simply because we made more copies. These copies go further back and they agree with each other, right? Like we find copies of ancient texts and there's lots of disagreements, but the Bible has this incredible agreement from document to document, a, a reliability. We're like, wow, this, this seems really authentic. It, it hangs together. There's a couple of ways that you can think about this as you ask questions of the reliability of the scriptures itself. Um, this is a guy named Sean McDowell that I'm going to quote. His father wrote a book that's a great one I would recommend called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The book is just full of evidences, the kinds of questions you should be asking about the reliability of the scriptures. And McDowell says this, many ancient books, there are just a few dozen existing manuscripts, right? Stuff we just assume is true, like Julius Caesar, he was a dude. We think he was real. How do we know? Well, we found a couple of manuscripts that were written like 500 years later, but we believe them, right? Whereas New Testament, we've got manuscripts that were written just like within a generation of the apostles, and we've got multiple copies and multiple translations, stacks and stacks of agreed upon documents. How do you know when something's true? I heard this from a sermon the other day. Someone said, hey, he was talking to someone else's uh, boyfriend. I said, hey, if, if I told you that I saw your girlfriend out with somebody else, would you be mad? Yeah. Well, how do you know it's true? It's just like a secondhand report, right? Like we operate on secondhand reports all the time. And then the more reports we have and the more evidence and the more people that corroborate the story, the more we believe it, right? 
And so the New Testament is full of this kind of corroboration, this kind of agreeing reports. McDowell goes on and says this. More manuscript discoveries have been made of Homer's Iliad, classic work, right? Homer's Iliad, more discoveries of this than any other classical work. It's hard to get an accurate number, he says, because we're constantly discovering new copies of these ancient manuscripts through archaeology and, and research. Many of the remains are fragmentary, right? We just find a little copy with three lines from it. Um, nevertheless, the total number is far less than 2,000. Like right now, at the writing of this blog where he was explaining this, the, the writing of Homer's Iliad, we, we have about 643 manuscripts, 643 Greek copies that were written way later than when it was first written. Very old, um, much later, not very original to when it was first written. Here's the number of Greek manuscripts we have of the Bible, 5,856. And the earliest manuscript was written in A.D. 130, within a generation of when these things took place. Now, we've also got non-Greek manuscripts. What does that mean? Well, immediately, they started translating this message into other languages. Christianity is uniquely translatable. It's a, it's a message that's made to be sent out into other languages and other tribes and other people groups. And we have uh, 18,000 other manuscripts in Armenian and, and Latin and in other languages. Total manuscripts we have right now, again, we keep discovering more, is 23,986. They say if you were to stack up the manuscripts we have of classical works, it might be four feet high. If you stack up the manuscripts we have of the New Testament, it's a mile high. It's just an overwhelming difference in evidence. In the number of corroborating agreement, witnesses saying the same thing as each other. One of the problems that our skeptics have is they say, well, if something testifies about the supernatural, it cannot be true. Because we, by faith, think that we live in a naturalistic world where supernatural things are not possible. But that's a faith assumption, right? And so here's a question. If it really is propaganda, why did the founders look so dumb all the time? Because that's not how propaganda works. They're doing it wrong. If it's really propaganda, they're going to make the founders look smart. But our founders look kind of stupid. You've got our founders not knowing what's going on, not believing Jesus, having all kinds of problems. We've got our founder, ultimate founder, Jesus, being crucified and killed. Another kind of propaganda issue is that the first witnesses were women. And now in our culture, we honor women in a different way. Thanks to Christianity, we honor women as equal to men, and we give women authority as witnesses in court. But in Roman court and Jewish court, they did not. And yet Christianity says, no, yeah, women were the first witnesses. And that honor that Christ gave to women is part of why we respect women more in our cultures today than they did back then. Again, if it was propaganda, they, they wouldn't have done it that way. This is a story that is a true story. Ask your questions. Those are just a few little examples. And I feel like I took too much time on those, and there's like hundreds of these veins of thought we could go down. When I first came to faith as a senior in high school, I was convinced of the gospel of Jesus. I was convinced that Jesus died for me. But then I went into a period of several years of deep questions of not understanding how all this made sense. I'd read things in the Bible and it didn't make sense. And you know what? I was, I was encouraged to ask my questions. And I just want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't be lazy, but ask your questions. There are plenty of answers out there. Ask your questions. And then finally, read. Actually read the Bible. Ask your questions of the Bible. We often call that apologetics. Read like the guy I was quoting from, evidence that demands a verdict. 
books like Tim Keller's The Reason for God. Um, there are other great books like that, The Case for Christ, that, that ask those questions. But then actually read the book. Let the book influence you. Let God's word press on your soul. Read the story. Jesus was teaching them from the Old Testament. He was probably talking about Psalm 118, maybe Psalm 110, maybe Daniel chapter 7. There are a lot of great places you could go that are just obvious predictions of this anointed leader. I want to read to you from Isaiah 53, and then we'll move on from this point. This was written 700 years before Christ. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not value him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we saw him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our sins. He was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his beatings, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. Now we can understand why Jesus says, don't you know that the Messiah was supposed to suffer? It's there. It was written 700 years before Christ. We also can be surprised by the Bible. Ask your questions and actually read the story. The last point is that we can be surprised by the closeness of Jesus. So again, big picture of this story, Jesus is right there with them. They don't even realize it. I would argue that Jesus is right here with us and we don't always see him. By faith, we can see him. By his Holy Spirit, we can see him. Let's see how it unfolds in the story here. Let's skip down to verse 30. Um, verse 28 and 29, there's a little back and forth. He's like, okay, I got to leave. See you later. And they're like, no, 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 stay with us. You just gave us a great Bible study. Eat dinner with us. And so he stays. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Sound familiar? Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Like, wait, What? They finally get to see him. Again, I, I want to think, he's like, boo, hey, here I am, you know. Probably it was more subtle than that. Here the implication is that their eyes were opened by an external force, by God. God might have been using the means of Jesus breaking bread and sharing that, right? These are disciples. They at least knew the stories of the feeding of the 5,000. Even if they weren't there, they at least knew the stories of the Last Supper, even if they weren't there. And so they're seeing him offer blessing and bread. They're beginning to see him close to them. Verse 32, after he vanishes, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They're like, we knew something was up, right? We knew it. And then he disappears. Verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11, right? Judas is already checked out now. They found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together. And this is what they were saying, the 11. The Lord has risen indeed. He's now appeared to the 11 also. The Lord has risen and he's appeared to Simon, Peter. Verse 35, then they, Cleopas and his buddies from the road to Emmaus, then they told of what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's starting to snowball. More and more appearances 
They're like, he appeared. They run back seven miles to Jerusalem to tell their buddies. And the 11 are like, hey, before they can say anything, hey, he appeared. We've seen him. They're like, hey, we saw him too. We saw him when he was breaking bread and then he disappeared. I don't know why he disappeared. But they keep seeing him more and more. And these witnesses to the resurrection start multiplying. And these stories start multiplying. And we've got many stories in the many different gospels of these witnesses to the resurrection. And they're always surprised by just how close he really is. And this story, particularly, he was there the whole time, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. I grabbed a picture here of a, of a dinner party. This is people breaking bread together, smiling, enjoying life together. I think this is one of the ways that we can see Jesus. So we enjoy sweet fellowship with one another. That's how they discovered him. Again, we don't know to what degree God just like intervened and said, okay, now I'm going to open their eyes. Versus how much, how much did God kind of just say, I'm going to work through the dinner party, so to speak. But we, we can enjoy good things from God. And we can either close our eyes and close our ears and be, as the Bible describes, foolish. Be the kind of foolish that doesn't want to know what God has to say. Be the kind of foolish and slow of heart to believe that doesn't want to pay attention to the information God has given us. That's what Romans 1 convicts us all of. Or we can be open and say, man, I enjoyed that dinner party and Jesus, Jesus was there. That was a gift from God. Man, I saw this fantastic sunrise. Jesus was there. That was a gift from him. He's close to me. Man, look at the springtime. Green things are popping up everywhere. God is good. He's close to me. We have two different postures we can take from our experiences in life. We can either recognize the very closeness of Jesus or we can close our eyes and our ears to it. And the Bible calls that foolishness. Not just a lack of information, but a refusal to accept the information that God is giving us. Where are you? Where am I? Do we recognize the closeness of Jesus? He's close. He's right here, he says, even now. John chapter 16, a little evidence for this. In John chapter 16, he says, it's actually better. It's, it's to your advantage, followers of Jesus, that I leave and send the Holy Spirit. He says, that's better than me staying here face to face. Somehow it's better. The world we live in, where we know Jesus by faith, and the Holy Spirit is his presence among us, that's better than getting to shake his hand and touch his face. But most of us are like, no, 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 Jesus, I want to see you, right? I would argue that we need to pay attention to what Jesus says in John chapter 16. He's saying that really is to our advantage. It really is better. He says it a different way in John chapter 14. As he's preparing to leave in John chapter 14, he's like, you're going to feel like an orphan. You're going to feel abandoned, but I'm, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. The pressure of the sadness of life is going to push on you and push on you and push on you, but know that I'm not actually leaving you as an orphan. I'm sending the Holy Spirit so that you'll know I'm here with you. Galatians and Romans picks this up and says, it's by that Holy Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. It's by the Spirit's presence that we know God is a good Father that loves us. He has not abandoned us. We're not orphans, but we're cared for supernaturally through the ongoing and dwelling and presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is closer than we realize. His Spirit is right here with us. Those disciples were surprised. They didn't even recognize him. He'd been hanging out with them the whole time. And I would argue that we also similarly should be surprised and say, Jesus, you're right here. You were here the whole time. 
I know that because your spirit teaches me to trust, teaches me to hope, teaches me that you're good, that you gave your life for me. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead, proving that he's conquered sin and death, and he sends his spirit to remind us that these things are true and that we can trust him and that he is good. How do we apply? How do we live out the closeness of Jesus? How do we do the closeness of Jesus? We have two commands in the New Testament, pray and share. Both of them base it, root it on the closeness of Jesus. Philippians 4, one of my favorite passages says, rejoice and pray. When you have anxiety, don't continue on in your anxiety, but pray. Talk to Jesus. Say, man, I got issues. Jesus, help me, help me, help me. Pray. Why? Well, it actually says in Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, so pray. He's with you. He's with you. Pray. Be assured that he's with you, so you call out to him for help, and call out to him for help so that he'll show you that he's with you. It it works together. And then also share. Matthew 28 is a famous passage, the end of Matthew. It's the Great Commission. Go out and tell the whole world about Jesus. And he says, uh, baptize people in my name and tell them to obey me. Teach them everything I've commanded. And then this whole section in Matthew 28 ends with this, and pay attention, behold. In the Greek, it's edu. It's just this thing you see in Greek literature all the time. It's basically like, hey, 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 look, look here, look here, okay? He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So he's saying, so go tell people. And that's exactly what we see these disciples doing. They're like, oh, he's here. We got to go tell our friends. And that's what we're called on to do as well. Be like, I I have hope in Jesus. I can't explain the whole thing. Yeah, I'm still sad sometimes too. Yeah, my life's not perfect, but, but Jesus has saved me. He came for me. He's not abandoned me. He's with us. And this book speaks about him. Uh, And I want to invite you into this process as well. Let's wrap up here. When I was trying to find cross-references on surprise, I was actually surprised that there are very little places, very few places that the word surprise appears in our English Bibles. Um, Hardly any evidences of that word in the Bible. But I found other words that kind of are synonyms, right? And the two most common synonyms for surprise in the Bible are astonished and amazed. Again and again, we're told that the Disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus were just like astonished at what he said. They were amazed at what he said. One of my favorite stories is in Matthew 19. Jesus says, powerful people, rich people, people that seem to have their stuff together, probably not saved. (laughs) What? This is dangerous for us because we're like the richest country in the world, right? And his disciples were astonished. They were shocked. No, uh, this can't be right. Jesus this is not the way to win a following, right? Don't say all the good people are bad people and get everything all jumbled up and confuse us here. They were astonished. They were surprised. They were like, well, how can anybody be saved, Jesus? Jesus says, what's impossible with human beings is possible with God. So here's the thing. You can't be saved. I can't be saved by what we do. Whether we're good people, whether we're the rich people that do all the right things and pay our taxes and, and do things well, we can't be good enough to save ourselves. Or we're the bad people that just say, I don't care what God says. I'm going to numb myself and have fun. Either way, we can't save ourselves. Whether it's by the indulgence of our flesh or the discipline of our flesh, we can't save ourselves. But what's impossible with people is possible with God. 
So if you don't hear anything else we said today, that's what I want you to be surprised by. Faith is what God has done for you. It's not about what you are doing for him. So trust yourself to Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you invite us to trust you. Thank you that while we often feel abandoned and on our own, you are pursuing us in love. Help us to see that. Well, I pray that for my own heart. I pray that for everybody here, that despite the pain of difficult diagnoses with the doctor, despite the pain of, of disasters around the world, of economic hardships, of whatever difficulties we're facing, we see you, a God who pursues us in love, who chases after us, who loves us, who wipes away every tear. Help us to trust you by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.